please take your Bibles to Ezra chapter 6 tonight. I try not to keep you long, but I can't promise anything. So, uh, no football games on tonight, though. That's a good thing, I guess. Ezra is the book right after 2 Chronicles, so teenagers helping you out there. You know, teenagers are good at the Baptist shuffle. You look at them there in the New Testament looking for Ezra. No, that's all right. Ezra chapter 6, I want to speak to you about this thought tonight. A building that lasts. A building that lasts. We'll find our place in Ezra chapter 6. We'll begin reading in verse number 1. The Bible says, Then Darius the king made a decree, and search was made in the house of the rolls where the treasures were laid up in Babylon. And there was found at Ashmethah, in the palace that is the province of the Medes, and a roll therein was a record thus written. In verse 3, In the first year of Cyrus the king, the same Cyrus the king, made a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be builded, the place where they offered sacrifices, and let the foundations thereof be strongly laid, the height thereof three score cubits, and the breadth thereof three score cubits, with three rows of great stones and a row of new timber, and let the expenses be given out of the king's house. And also let the golden and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took forth out of the temple which is at Jerusalem and brought up uh, unto Babylon, be restored and brought again unto the temple which is at Jerusalem, everyone to his place, and uh, place them in the house of God. Now therefore, Tatnai, governor beyond the river Shethar-Baznai, you like that pronunciation? That was just a guess. And your companions, the Arphasashite, another guess. I looked at both those words, trying long and hard on how to pronounce them, and that's the best I got, okay? Which are beyond the river, be ye far from thence. Verse 7. Let the work of this house of God alone, let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews build this house of God in his place. Moreover, I make a decree what ye shall do to the elders of these Jews for the building of this house of God, that of the king's goods, even of the tribute beyond the river, forthwith expenses be given unto these men, that they be not hindered. And that which they have need of, both young bullocks and rams and lambs for burnt offerings of God uh, of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, and oil, according to the appointment of the priests which are in Jerusalem, let it be given uh, at them day by day without fail, that they may offer sacrifices of sweet savors unto the God of heaven, pray for the life of the king and of his sons. Verse 11. Also I have made a decree that whosoever shall alter this word... Let timber be pulled down from his house, and being set up, let him be hanged thereon, and let his house be made a dunghill for this. And the God that hath caused his name to dwell there, destroy all kings and people that shall put to their hand to alter and destroy this house of God, which is at Jerusalem. I, Darius, have made a decree, let it be done with speed. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you now asking you to bless not only the reading of your word, but Lord, we pray now that you'd bless the preaching of it. 
Lord, I stand here with nothing to offer the congregation, but they have come expecting something. So, Lord, we find ourselves in a great strait. I pray tonight that you would please speak to them, because, Lord, I cannot. I pray that you would fill me with your spirit and direct me. And, Lord, if there's something that I were to say that would not bring honor and glory to you, withhold me from saying it. But, Lord, I pray that you would encourage me, and so be in my tongue that you would guide me and direct me as you did those who wrote your word tonight. Lord, I pray that you'd please bless this service. It's in your son's name I do pray. Amen. A building that lasts. Boy, in the midst of a building program, I think that's a a topic that would be wise to speak on. A building that lasts. Now, I have just now finished uh, building my own house. And my wife and I chose not to... Um, build a garage because in building our house we found that we could not build such a large house you know we were looking somewhere around 10 20,000 square feet but we decided for something much more quaint but uh, uh, we were building the house and, and they said well a garage would add about 400 square feet but you pay for those 400 square feet and I said well I don't really want my car to take up 400 square feet of my home and so we decided to not put a garage on the on the house itself because that was going to cost us about $16,000 to build that garage attached to our home. And so we were a little tight for money, so we couldn't do that. So we decided to uh, build a detached garage once the house was completed. And so that's where we find ourselves now. A completed home, but no garage. Well, I've been checking around on prices for detached garages. And what my plan is, is to get very similar to a carport, but basically, if you can imagine with me, an enclosed carport, it's just a, a small metal building is what I'm going to go for, just a, a small metal building. And so obviously we have this place right up here in Joshua. There's also another place in Burleson that my dad has used in the past. And I even got online and found one of the big corporate uh, bu- uh, steel building uh, uh, places to give me a bid. So I checked these three places for bids. And, and Joshua's was actually uh, pretty good. I thought it was around $5,000, which obviously is, is a lot less than $16,000, which is what it was going to take me to build an attached garage. So $5,000, I was, I was okay with that. I, I was still interested to see what, you know, the corporate company could provide because they've got access to a lot better pipelines, I'm assuming. And so I figure that they'll come back with a great quote. And, and so they called me no less than a dozen times. Talked to two or three different salesmen along the process, one in Denver, Colorado. Then I got transferred to, like, Nevada. I don't even know. I, I talked to so many different people. And the dumb thing was they asked me the exact same questions every single time I talked to a different person. So what are we looking to build? I just got done talking to Steve. Well, my name's Jeff, so what are we looking to build again? And so it was a very frustrating process, but I was thinking, well, if you could save me money, we'll go ahead and do it anyway. Well, I finally got the call from a guy named Steve. He was the last guy I talked to. He was the guy who, who was supposedly going to help me and get my building done. And he calls me. He says, now, Andrew, I'm going to be very honest with you up front. We can't come close to the price you already have. I go, well, thanks, Steve. Have a good life. <laughs> no, but he continued and he said, I'll tell you where we're at, Andrew. We're at $20,000. He heard me giggle. <laughs> no, he, he, he knew that he was nowhere in the ballpark of even 
uh, coming close to the price I already had, and I'd already told him that I could build an attached garage onto my home for $16,000, so there was no way I was going to go with Steve and his company, but Steve began to know, you know, like, lay on the sales pitch, right? Because he's not going to just let a, let a sale go, and Steve talks to me, he says, now, Andrew, I'm not saying anything about the company you already have a bid from. But our warranty is much better than theirs. I go, it should be approximately four times better than theirs, actually. (laughs) If I'm doing the math, it ought to be four times better than theirs. And, you know, it's kind of funny, but what Steve's approach was when he found out that there was no way he could have my business was, is your building going to last with them? Because if you go with me, it's really going to last. So I find it very interesting that one man would say, I've got a building that lasts and yours doesn't. Now tonight, maybe the scripture we've read has not completely filled you in on everything that's going on, so we will have to recap a lot. But truly, these Israelites are trying to build a building that lasts. And I want to talk to you briefly about four, four things that are required for a building that lasts. First of all, we will see this. God's means are always mysterious. God's means are always mysterious. Look in verses 1 through 5, and we'll really notice in verse 1, Then Darius the king made a decree. Now as I've already uh, informed you and I've already told you, there is a lot of background story to where we find ourselves. Truly, our story began over 150 years ago. It was with the Babylonian captivity. And if you've studied your Bible much at all, you've heard that term probably. But basically what it was is God told Israel, because of the sin that was in Israel and because of their rebellion against God, Babylon, and specifically King Nebuchadnezzar, would come and take over Jerusalem. And the beautiful temple which Solomon had built, and David had so longed to build himself, but he could not, so he gathered the materials, but Solomon was able to. And the beautiful wonder of the world, the temple of Solomon, built for Jehovah, the God of Israel, the beautiful temple, everything overlaid with gold, that was destroyed. And our story really begins with this captivity. As Babylon comes in, they take all of the Jews, all of Israel, out. And they remove them and they destroy Jerusalem and the walls that are around Jerusalem. They destroy the temple that's at Jerusalem. Now this is bad news. And so several years later, even several decades later, we really find ourselves 70 years to be exact. Flip over to Ezra chapter 1. Ezra chapter 1. Now, what's unique about this story is God used King Nebuchadnezzar to accomplish his will. For it was Jeremiah in Jeremiah 25 that foretold or prophesied that King Nebuchadnezzar would come and overtake uh, Israel. The Bible says, Therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, because ye have not heard my words... Behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, saith the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land. 
Now, I don't believe Nebuchadnezzar was saved, and so God says, My servant, the Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, I will use him, and against all the inhabitants thereof, and against all these nations round about, and will utterly destroy them. So Jeremiah prophesies this event, and he says, King Nebuchadnezzar will come, he will destroy the temple, he will destroy the walls of Jerusalem, and he will remove the Israelites from God's promised land, Jerusalem. But I also find what's very unique is Isaiah also prophesies something. In Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 28, Isaiah speaks of another king. Not Nebuchadnezzar, but a man by the name of Cyrus. Look here, in ver- uh, you don't have this in front of you, but it's Isaiah 44 verse 28. That saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem... Thou shalt be built, and to the temple thou foundation shall be laid. So really we have two men who are foretold that have some part in the Babylonian captivity. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar was the king who came and, and took these men and took over uh, Jerusalem and destroyed the temple and destroyed the walls that were around it. And he overtook them, and that was the captivity. But Isaiah tells us of a king named Cyrus. Now, he's unique in the story because we find him in Ezra, verse 1 of chapter 1. Now, you have Nebuchadnezzar, the evil king, but God uses him to accomplish his will, which is to judge Israel. But verse 1 of chapter 1 in Ezra, Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, now that's the same guy Isaiah prophesied about, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build him an house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Now, Cyrus is a pagan king. He's a king that overtook Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. He himself is king of Persia. So really what you have is you have Israel overtaken by Babylon, which then is overtaken by Persia. And you have uh, the Jews, and you have uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and you have Cyrus. Now, God works in Nebuchadnezzar's heart that he would go and judge uh, Israel. But he also works in Cyrus's heart that he would rebuild the temple. Is that not very unique? I find that so unique because God wouldn't even let David build the temple. And now the Bible's telling us that a pagan king, the Persian king, now has been given charge to rebuild the temple of God. Can I just say this? God's means are always mysterious. And they don't always make sense to us. I'll give you an example, a scientific example. Evaporation. Now, we know what evaporation is. We're well informed and well familiar with what evaporation is in Texas, are we not? It gets 120 degrees outside, and we can see it evaporating. You know what I mean? Uh, We go, and, and I don't know about you, I spend some time on the lakes and on the ponds and on the rivers around here. And if you spend time on them in the spring, right after the showers come and we get our good spring showers, 
our lakes and our rivers, they're usually pretty full, but by the end of the summer, something very unique has happened. No longer are they up here, but they're way, way low. And last year I was fishing on a lake, and it was 18 feet lower by the end of the summer than it was at the beginning of the spring. What happened? A process of evaporation. Now, the reason I call your attention to this is because the water must disappear so that it can be given again. Does that make sense to you? I mean, if, if I'm sitting there and I have a pond, I say, man, that pond's getting low. Man, I, 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 in order for me to fill this pond up, I would never think, I need to take some more water away. But that's how God works. Because the water evaporates, and we know how it goes into the clouds, and the clouds form water vapor, and then they get so heavy. That's what, we were, that's what I always thought as a kid, you know, the clouds get so heavy, they begin to rain. And that's the process of evaporation. God's ways are not always our ways. Is that not what the Bible says? Neither are his thoughts our thoughts. The reason I find this unique is that God used a wicked man to destroy the temple, and now he's using a pagan king to build another one. You know, I'm so thankful that we have our, our senior pastor, our co-pastor, Gene Wolfenbarger, a man who's preached the gospel now on 48 years. I'm so thankful his leadership is in our church. I'm thankful that he had the vision and the wherewithal and the leadership of the Lord on his life that he said, by faith, we will build these buildings. Now to me, I'm thinking, that's two and a half million dollars a day. But he had a vision. And every week he stands and he preaches to us and he casts that vision to us and he says, we can do this. God can do this. God by faith will accomplish the goal at hand. The task is at hand. Our theme, the Sunday school lessons we're teaching, God is able to provide. You know what? Two and a half million dollars in debt don't sound fun to nobody. Pardon my English. It's not going to be fun, but I do believe God is able to provide. And I'm thankful for a God in heaven who works in the heart of a man who loves him and has given his life to learn about him and know him deeply so that when he gets a vision from God, an idea, a goal, he can stand before us and we can trust in that goal. You see, God's ways are not always our ways. But I do want you to notice how it's very unique. God used a man to rebuild the temples. A, a man that was not necessarily qualified, for if David wasn't qualified, I, I don't know how Cyrus was. But God chose to use a man who in my mind doesn't make sense, but God used Cyrus. And without Cyrus, there is no book of Ezra. Because he stood up and he said, God has chosen me to rebuild the temple. And that's all Ezra is about. And so God's ways are always mysterious. But secondly, I want you to look. God's uh, plan is always progressive. It always progresses. Look in verses 6 and verse 7 of chapter 6. Now, 
we will always, with every point that I give tonight, have to revisit a lot of historical background. We'll have to understand the context of what's taking place. But right here uh, uh, in verses 6 and verse 7, we find that God's plan always, always progresses. Now, in verse 6, the Bible says, and y'all just wanted me to try pronouncing these names again. That's what y'all did. Verse 6, Now therefore, Tetnai, governor beyond the river Shetharsbani, and your companions of Arseshathites, uh, which are beyond the river, be far from thence. Now notice this in verse 7. As Israel has been in captivity now 70 years, they've been longing to return. They remember the days where they were able to sacrifice on God's altar every day, and they were able to see the beautiful temple that was built, and they long for that again. Now, verse 7, God's work will always progress. Let the work of this house of God alone, let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews build this house of God in his place. Now, if you take your Bibles to chapter 4 of Ezra, we'll notice a little bit that takes place, but essentially, as King Cyrus has commissioned these Israelites, and there's about 50,000 of them that return. Now, this is prophesied that a very small remnant would return to Jerusalem and would rebuild the temple, and that is where we find ourselves. But only 50,000 have returned. And now they stand there, and they are building the wall. They're progressing. They've got uh, the king's backing, and they've got uh, God's backing Verse number 1 of chapter 4, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard the children of captivity, builded the temple unto the Lord God of Israel. Now with progress, will there not always be adversaries? When you start uh, getting accomplishments and you start gaining some ground, it seems like adversaries always pop up. They always arise. Verse number one of the last chapter, we've noticed uh, Osiris, king of uh, Persia, how he commissions the people, says, go build the temple. But now look in verses five and six of chapter four. We begin to see the throne is uh, now in a constant state of change uh, and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So there's one change on the throne. Now, since we're more in a teaching uh, state tonight, not so much in a preaching state because it's Wednesday night and we're trying to learn a little bit, I'll ask you to respond. Now, who was the first king who commissioned the building progress? He said, I want you, God has chosen me to go build the temple. His name was King what? Cyrus. Starts with a C and rhymes with Iris, okay? What was his name? King Cyrus, exactly. I help the teenagers a little bit out like that every now and again. His name was what? King Cyrus, that's exactly right. Now, he was the one that decided, you ought to go, you ought to build the temple because God's spoken to me, right? But now we find in verse number five, now King Darius is on the throne. So the guy who made the original decree that God was going to use to build the temple, uh, uh, he's no longer on the throne. And I don't know about you, but the day dead men start talking, I'm going to have to get out of that place, right? 
So what does Cyrus have to say about Darius's decrees? Nothing. But now look in verse 6. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, so now we have another king change. So it went from Cyrus to Darius to Ahasuerus. In the beginning of the reign wrote they unto him an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. So now these people uh, are writing to him saying, we don't like what's going on here. These people are building this temple, they're making progress, and there's some people uh, trying to cause contention and some strife. And so they say, we don't like what's going on here. We're going to write the king and let him know what's going on. So Ahasuerus hears about it, but no change is made. Now verse 7. And in the days of Artaxerxes wrote Bishlam, Mishradath, man, I should have never got into this verse, Tabil and the rest of their companions unto Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Now that's the fourth king. It went from Cyrus to Darius to Ahasuerus, and now we're at Artaxerxes, and they wrote to Ahasuerus saying, we don't like what's going on, but he didn't do anything. Now they've written to Artaxerxes, and the writing of the letter was written in the Syrian tongue and interpreted in the Syrian tongue. Verse 8, Rehum, the chancellor of Shishmai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, and this sort. So now we see all this taking place. Uh, we see that they begin to write to uh, Dar- uh, Darius, or they wrote to Ahasuerus. Uh, now they've written to Artaxerxes saying, we do not like the progress. We don't like what's going on. And it was read to him. Now look down in verses 19 of chapter 4, 19 through 21. Now this is Artaxerxes' response. He's done a little research. He's looked back in the, I guess, library, if you will, and he's found out that Israel, and specifically Jerusalem, at one time was a powerful kingdom. He's looked back at rulers like King David, and he saw, man, he was a powerful ruler. And he's looked back at a ruler like King Solomon, and he said, man, he was a powerful ruler. And that was the uh, 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 accusation that was given against the children of Israel. But in verse 19, this is Artaxerxes' response. And I commanded, and search hath been made, and it is found that this city of old hath made insurrection against kings, and that rebellion and sedition have been made therein. Now this is where he's talking about David and Solomon and those rulers like that. There have been mighty kings also over Jerusalem, which have ruled over all countries beyond the river, and toll and tribute and custom was paid unto them, because they were the power of the world at that time. Now, verse 21, this is his command. Give ye now commandment to cause these men to cease, and that this city be not builded until another commandment shall be given from me. Now, chapter 1, verse 1, King Cyrus says, Go build the temple. God has spoken to my heart, and I want you, anybody that wants to go, and 50,000 chose to go, to build the temple. And I can just imagine the, the excitement, how elated they must have felt. We're going back home. We're going to build the temple. God has worked in the heart of a pagan man. Now they get there. They've started to build. They've started to see progress. And in fact, they've even laid the foundation by now in chapter 4. But then a man dies. 
Another man takes the throne. Another man takes the throne. And now we find ourselves with Artaxerxes. And he overrules the decree of King Cyrus. And he says, you know, I've done some research. And what if they get that powerful again? They would be a threat to me and my kingdom. Cease building the temple at once. That's pretty bad news, isn't it? That's pretty bad news that, you know, they had the backing of everybody at one point. It seemed it was going so easy. It was going just fine. And then all at once, somebody writes the king a letter and the king says, no more. But can I say, God's work always progresses regardless of opposition against it. If God be for us, who is it that can stand against us? There's nobody that if God's will is to be accomplished can say anything contrary or do anything contrary to that will being accomplished. No man can stand in the way of uh, uh, God's plan of salvation for all men to be saved. I don't care how many uh, abominable doctrines are made that saying, oh, well, only a few can be saved. See, that's men trying to stand in the will of, uh, against the will of God, and God says, no. I have chosen all men to be saved. Uh, the Lord is not slack concerning His promises, but, uh, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, uh, and not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to know His Son, and that all should be saved from eternal damnation, and that all would know His Son in salvation. You see, if God's will is one thing, no man can stand against it. God spoke to King Cyrus and said, I want you to accomplish a goal. Now King Artaxerxes says, no more. No man can stand against God's will. You know, in this building project, we have faced some bumps. We have faced some things that we were not quite expecting. I don't think we were quite expecting $50,000 worth of sprinklers in the building that we had never uh, accounted for. I don't think we were quite expecting for a water line that was originally only going to go about 20 feet for it to now go over 200 feet, and we have to pay that bill. But I want to stop and say, God's work will progress. Bumps will come, sure. Difficulties will arise, sure. But it doesn't matter if it's uh, a 50,000 bill or King Artaxerxes, God's will will happen. And so I want to encourage us tonight, God's plan will always progress regardless of who stands against it, regardless of the opposition that's in its way. And I firmly believe this, as I've already said tonight, God, uh, uh, Satan has oppressed us this month specifically. Uh, I don't often get sick, and I've been sick two different times this month. Even if my dad is sick, you'd probably never know it, and he's been so down that he could not get up. Sickness has been rampant throughout our church. People having to stay home, weather being ugly and gnarly, and, and getting everybody sick and just making everybody weak so that we couldn't come to church. And now we're trying to raise $150,000. God's work always progresses. It doesn't matter if Satan tries his very best. It will progress. For if God be for us, who can be against us? 
God's plan always progresses. Thirdly, tonight we must hurry. God's supply always succeeds. Look here in verses 8 through 10 of chapter 6. Now, the good thing is I don't have to give you a history lesson here. But in verse 8, this is the decree of now King Darius. Moreover, I make a decree what ye shall do to the elders of these Jews for the building of this house of God. So he's saying, this is my decree. I've now overruled Artaxerxes. This is my decree. That of the king's goods, even of the tribute beyond the river, forthwith expenses be given unto these men, that they be not hindered. So where finances begin to wear a little thin, and maybe they needed a little help, Financially, and what church in a building project has not needed a little help financially. <laughs> now things are getting a little tight, and so Darius makes a decree. He says, here's my decree. If they need anything, you take it from our house. You take it from me, the king. Now I find this very unique because in Ezra chapter 1, verse 6, Darius, uh, uh, Cyrus says something very similar. Then rose up, uh, I'm sorry, in verse 6, And all they that were uh, about them strengthened their hands with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, and with beasts, and with precious things, beside all that was willingly offered. So everybody that could go to Jerusalem was about 50,000, but everybody that could not, their part was to give. They gave all this money. They gave tons of money. Now we see in ver- uh, chapter, uh, 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 we look now, uh, let me see here. Uh, we've moved on to Ezra chapter 1, verse 7. So the people have given an offering, verse 7. Also Cyrus the king brought forth the vessels of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had brought forth out of Jerusalem and had put them in the house of his gods. So the people have given an offering. Then Cyrus gives what Nebuchadnezzar brought out. He gives gold. Now we see uh, in the second time that money is given in Ezra 2, Verse 64, this is very unique. Uh, Ezra 2, verse 64. The whole congregation together was 40 and 2,303 score. Now we move down, and some of the chief of the fathers, uh, when they came to the house, and this is in verse uh, 68, house of the Lord, which is at Jerusalem, offered freely for the house of God to set it up his place. They gave after their ability... And that's what I hope is done this Sunday. Every man gives as he is able to. Because as God provides, you will be able to give what God gives you. And that's what I hope is done. Every man is able to give a great amount. That's exactly what happens here. They gave after their ability unto the treasure of the work three score and one thousand drams of gold and five thousand pound of silver and one hundred priest's garments. Now... I got on Google Converter, and uh, ancient conversions are not there on Google. Shocker, I know. But I did read one man who's a Bible scholar, and he estimated this amount to be equal to modern day, and you can take this or leave it. I'm not saying it's true. I'm not saying it's false. But his best guess was that in gold they raised over $16 million $400,000 worth of gold. And that they were raised over a million eight worth of silver. Now they've raised over 17, nearly 18 
million dollars according to this man. As I said, you can take it, you can leave it. It's not in the Bible, so that is a man's opinion. But let's just say it's a lot of money. And now King Cyrus has given to the cause. The people have given to the cause. And now when finances get a little thin, now King Darius says, anything I have I'll give to the cause. I don't want you to think that this church needs you to uh, throw yourself over the barrel to give an offering because without you it could not be accomplished. Because when it comes to finances, God doesn't need your money. I just struggle to find a place where somebody who is commissioned by God to do a project for God ever struggled financially. Because God will provide. And His supply never runs short. You see, I want you to give, and I want you to give a great amount that stretches your faith for your growth and for the uh, propagation of the gospel so that we can get it out to more people and that we can do great things for the Lord in these new wings. I hope that our goal is met. But don't think it all depends on you. Because if it depends on you, we need to shut the doors. It needs to depend on Him. God is able and His supply never runs short. Philippians 4 is a great chapter in the Bible, but specifically verse 19 says this, But my God shall supply all your needs according to His riches in glory. Now that's not the stock market. That's not your bank account. That's speaking of a place where we walk on streets of gold. According to His riches in glory. We have no idea how much wealth is in glory. But I know $150,000 don't even tap it. Doesn't even touch it. God's supply will never run short. And finally, I want you to notice this, and we are almost done. God's hedge always handles. God's hedge always handles. Look at verse 11 of chapter 6. Now, we've seen several unique things. I find it interesting that God would use King Cyrus, even though he was not necessarily a Jew, to rebuild the temple. That's a great story. That's a, a good thing. And I find it unique that even though he, they met great opposition, uh, I, I think it's cool how God was able to get that opposition removed. But now in verse 11, Darius is still decreeing, and he just adds this in, and he says, Also, I have made a decree that whosoever shall alter this word, this decree I just made, to help them whatever the cost, whosoever shall alter this word, let timber be pulled down from his house, and being set up, let him be hanged thereon, let his house be made a dunghill for this, and the God that hath caused his name to dwell there, destroy all kings and people that shall put their hand to the altar, and destroy this house of God, which is at Jerusalem." I, Darius, have made a decree, let it be done with speed. So now Darius says, look guys, we're going to build this temple. These Jews are going to build this temple, and if they need our help financially, if they need our help in any way, we'll help them. And I'll tell you what, I'll tell you one more thing. The guy that tries changing what I've just said, he's going to be killed. And I just find it extremely unique that God used a pagan man 
to protect his building. He used somebody, uh, he used this king, Darius, to protect his work. You know, God puts hedges of protection around our lives. I pray that God would protect my wife. I pray that he would put a hedge of protection around my daughter. I, I pray that he would put a hedge of protection from sin entering this church and, 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 and sin becoming rampant in this church. I, I pray that he would put a hedge of protection around this. But you know what else I pray? God would put a hedge of protection around these buildings that we're building. I pray that he would put a hedge of protection around what goes on in these buildings. I, I pray that he would just protect us. And that's what Darius says. He says, I tell you what, this will be accomplished, and God uses him to do it. Now, all of us would recall the story of Daniel in the lion's den. Probably many of us have seen either VeggieTale videos or we've seen flannographs. I remember sitting in class and we had the little boards that somehow magically held paper to those boards and you were so amazed by it and you'd take Daniel. It was funny because Daniel was the same as David and it was the same guy, I don't know how, but every week Daniel uh, was David and then he was uh, Saul one week, but Daniel was there and then he walked into this uh, lion's den which also served as the tomb on resurrection morn, uh, if you know what I mean. And, and there were some lions in that tomb and and, uh, and and we all know the story, do we not? How there were some men, that they met some adversity and some men didn't like what Daniel was doing. He was kind of getting elevated in the kingdom. He was kind of becoming very popular and very powerful. So they didn't like that too much. So they said, uh, Darius, what we need to do is we need you to sign this decree that nobody can pray or ask anything of God or any God, but they have to ask it of you for 30 days. Now Darius signs off on this, never once thinking about Daniel. Now Darius loved Daniel. He enjoyed his company. He thought he was a wise young man. And that's really the reason he was saved from the captivity himself. So we know that. And, and so uh, Daniel, as his custom was, wasn't going to shy down from it. He knew the law. He knew the decree. But Daniel stayed faithful to God, did he not? And he opened his window. That's the way I picture it. He opened his window and... And got right out there on the, on the opening, the, the patio, so everybody could see him. And he prayed to his God. Now, that's the way I picture it. You can picture it any way you want. But I just picture him right out there in the open. And I can just imagine those princes and those governors standing down there saying, We got him, guys. Daniel's praying. We made this decree. Well, news gets back to Darius. And he made that decree. And he regrets it. But to stay faithful to his word, he has to go in and put Daniel in the lion's den, for that's what the punishment was. Now, the cool thing about that story, and the reason it makes such a great flannograph, is none of those lions' mouths were ever open, right? Because God shut their mouth. And I don't know if he filled their belly so much, like they had just ate McDonald's, and like an hour later they had just eaten McDonald's, they all feel bad, and they just want to go lay down and sleep. I don't know what it was, but, but God shut their mouth somehow. And Daniel wasn't touched. And now the next day, Daniel comes out. And Darius is excited. Now the same king who decreed that everyone who asked of God, that prayed of God in that 30-day span would be thrown into the lion's den, because of Daniel's action, makes a second decree. 
Now, many of us don't know about this, but the second decree is found in Daniel 6, 25, and it says this, Then King Darius wrote unto all people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied unto you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, and steadfast forever, and his kingdom that which, uh, that which shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall be even unto the end. What happens here is God used Daniel, and he put a hedge of protection around Daniel so much that a king saw it and said, I make a decree, that's the God everyone will serve. God protected Daniel, and God won the victory that day because everybody said, man, if God can protect that little boy from those mouths of those lions, he's the God of the universe. And that's what Darius's conclusion was, and I truly believe that's a wise conclusion to come to. Because if God can do something amazing in these buildings, if God can do something amazing in a $150,000 offering at a congregation, which no offense, I look out here tonight, it don't look like there's $150,000 in this room. And we might even be a little crazy for asking for it. Well, preacher's not in this room, so with him in here, that'd probably make the... No, it doesn't make sense. And if God can do something amazing, people will see. You know what they'll say? That's the living God. That's the true God. And I just believe that with all my heart. Now we've been building, uh, been trying to figure out how to do this with the house over there at my place. And we got the house built. Now I've got a pad poured for this building to go on. And we were trying to figure out what was the best way to set the foundation on my property? And I met with my concrete guy several times, and, and throughout the course of it, you know, I had taken some hunting arrows, and I had tied some yarn to it, and I had gone out there and staked this and staked that, and I would make my square pad, and it would never look right, and I was trying to do it as best as I knew how, and it just wasn't working. And I remember meeting with my concrete guy out there, and I said, man, I, I know I want it to be about 11 feet off my house. And I know I want it to be straight with my house. You know what I mean? He's like, yeah. He said, come here, Andrew. All I need is this corner. If you can tell me where this corner is, I know where to go from there. He said, the corner. If you give him the corner and you give him the information of that corner, he can make it look good from there. I wonder if there's any similarities to that, why Jesus would be called the cornerstone. The cornerstone in ancient times was the first stone laid. It was the principal stone. It was the one that the building was fashioned upon and around. If that was laid incorrectly, the rest of the building was shabby. But if that was laid right, it was straight and it was strong. You want to know how to build a building that lasts? Don't build it on our ability to raise $150,000. Don't build it on financial savvy or ability to make ends meet. Build it on the cornerstone. 
You know why this temple was rebuilt? Because it was God the one doing the building. I believe God has spoken to the man of God in our congregation. He said, this is what our church needs to do. This is God's plan for our church. So I say we jump on His will. And I say we support it fully, and I say we support it sacrificially. And Sunday we have an opportunity to do that, but I pray and I pray that we build it around Christ. Because if these buildings are used just for activities, if they're just used for fellowships, if they're uh, no offense to the tops, ladies, if they're just used to take off pounds sensibly, that will not bring glory to Him. But if they're used to further Christ in the lives of people who need Him, then you'll build it on the cornerstone.